Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University and by BBC Northeast and Cumbria. The Empire Windrush brings to Britain 500 Jamaicans. Many are ex-servicemen who know England. They serve this country well. In Jamaica, they couldn't find work. Discouraged but full of hope, they sailed for Britain. Citizens of the British Empire coming to the mother country with good intent. Prodded by public opinion, the colonial office gives them a more cordial reception than was at first envisaged. My name's Ian Wiley, and for the next half hour, you'll hear Guardian reporter Amelia Gentleman describe how she uncovered the so-called Windrush scandal, the wrongful detention and deportation of scores of British citizens whose families came to the UK from the Caribbean in the late 1940s and 50s to help rebuild post-war Britain. Home Secretary, will you resign over Windrush? Who knew and when? The Home Secretary, number 10, everyone round here says they're sorry now. Amelia's reporting led ultimately to the resignation of the Home Secretary, but more importantly, it forced the government to loosen its hostile environment for migrants. Amelia was speaking at an investigative journalism conference at Newcastle University, hosted by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with the Centre for Investigative Journalism. In this conversation with Zubayda Malik, she begins by explaining the origins of the story. Started hearing about this problem last November, um, and I really, really clearly remember um, the, the first time I became aware of the whole issue was um, I had an email from a relatively small charity in Wolverhampton um, called the Refugee and Migrant Centre there, um, and they sent me an email um, which which I think in the, in the email title it said something like um, urgent, you, you know, your help is needed. Um, a woman who's been in Britain for 50 years has been detained. Um, and it said, in the, the email said that one of their clients had been taken to Yarlswood, um, was about to be deported back to Jamaica, and it was clear to this charity that a terrible mistake had been made because she'd been somebody who'd arrived from Jamaica at the age of 10 or 11 and had suddenly, at the age of uh, 60, been classified as an illegal immigrant by the Home Office. So I had this email. I was actually off work for a few days because I think it was a school half-term. And so I sent it to my editors and I said, this looks really worrying, Um, maybe somebody could have a look at it. Um, When I went back to work a a week later, um, I was asking what had happened about the story and actually nothing had happened about it because one of my colleagues had called up, but by that point the the woman in in question, Paulette Wilson, had been released from Yarlswood Um, and I thought you know, nevertheless, she's been released. That's, that's good news, but it's still, it's, it's, quite, it's quite bad that a, you know, 60-year-old grandma had been um, detained anyway in, in Yarlswood. So, so I arranged to go and see her, and I went and met her in, um, in, in Wolverhampton and tried to understand what had gone wrong in, in, her, um, in her engagement with the Home Office that had meant that she'd been apparently 
quite wrongly um, classified as an um, illegal immigrant. And then from there, it was a, a very, very long and slow process of trying to understand myself what, what had gone wrong. Um, it wasn't at all clear to begin with. Um, she didn't understand it. And the local charity was only beginning to understand that this might be something that you could point back to um, government changes that were introduced in 2012 and 2014 and, and 2016 with the introduction of the hostile environment immigration policy. So that's, that's really where it started with this article about Paulette Wilson. So I went and I met her at her home and I met the, um, the caseworker who'd taken on her case. Um, I read through a lot of home office documents, um, letters to her that had been coming for the year, two years before. There was a lot of paperwork that said to her, you need to come and um, report to the home office reporting centre every two weeks. Um, and the, the letters were actually very scary because they, um, they said, you, you don't have the right to be in this country. You need to leave the country voluntarily. If you don't leave, um, if you don't leave Britain within six months, you're liable to detention and to deportation. And and for Paulette, who'd lived in um, who'd lived in Wolverhampton and, and London for 50 years, it, it was naturally totally terrifying because she had this letter. She didn't understand why she'd been um, sent it. And no matter who she tried to explain um, that a mistake had been made, that there wasn't really any um, immediate desire to, to listen to her. So I spoke to her lawyer. Um, she, they found a pro bono lawyer for her in Wolverhampton. I spoke to the local MP, Emma Reynolds. I spoke to the, um, to the charity. And actually, the, the lawyer who was helping her was able to say quite clearly that he was beginning to see quite a lot of people in her situation. So n nobody else who'd been detained, but he said that he'd seen people who had um, lost their jobs because they'd also been misclassified as illegal immigrants, or they'd lost their benefits, or they'd lost... Um, They'd lost the right to travel. So he, he was already aware that this, this was something that you could trace back to the 2014 um, Immigration Act. But, but for me at that point, I, it was still quite kind of confusing, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so we published this article about Paulette Wilson and, and something about maybe about the picture of her, it's of a, a kind of a very, um, it, it's kind of hard sometimes as a journalist because you, you put a lot of work into writing hundreds and hundreds of words and then there's a picture and, and the picture is, is so much more powerful than, than everything else. But in, anyway, in, in conjunction, um, it, it did have, um, it did have quite a lot of, impact, I guess, because it was so hard to understand why this woman who lived here so long, who'd even spent some time working in the House of Commons serving food to MPs, who had no, nothing on her record to suggest that, um, 
you know, she was somebody who needed to be detained. It just was kind of very hard to understand why officials had decided that she had to be sent to Yarlswood. And, and Yarlswood, as, as I knew from writing about um, immigration matters quite a lot, is, is not somewhere that you, I mean, you, do, you don't want to be detained at all, but you don't want to go to Yarlswood. In, um, I think, at the end of November, we published this interview with Paulette Wilson, and I went to work the next day, and I had a phone call, or I missed a phone call, and, and somebody left a, a message um, on, my work, um, on my work phone. And it was a man called um, Sean who said, you need to come and interview my father, because my father's in exactly the same situation. He's been detained for um, five weeks in total. He's had um, three weeks the year before and, and two weeks last year. Um, and he's also somebody who's been in Britain for 50 years, arrived as a child, and cannot understand why he's been classified as, a, um, as an illegal immigrant. So I went to see um, that man. He's some, someone called Anthony Bryan. He lived in London, so I was able to go and see him, I think, the next day. Um, and he was obviously completely furious and also devastated by what had happened to him. He'd, um, he'd lost his job that he'd been doing, I think, for years because his employer had understood that he had to check papers because there was a, a kind of enhanced requirement to make sure that all employees were, um, had papers to prove that they were here legally. Um, and his employer had said, you know, if you don't have the right papers, I'm liable to be fined £20,000. I have to let you go. So he'd lost his job. He hadn't been able to um, claim benefits having lost his job. Um, so he was in a really, really precarious situation financially. And he'd been twice sent to detention, one time for three weeks and the second time for two weeks. Um, and he was completely unable to get any legal advice because... Um, in 2013, I think, the um, legal aid for immigration cases was more or less entirely abolished. Um, his partner had, had pulled together some money, borrowed some money, and um, had, got, ha had paid for a, a lawyer, but I think that, I mean, that it was really expensive. Um, and he hadn't had a huge amount of help from his local MP. A anyway... Um, I understood, again, that this was another really worrying case, but it was only when I was leaving his house that he said that he um, had three, I think, friends from primary school who were in a similar situation, who, who were also facing immigration problems. And at that point, I just, I couldn't, that, that was really when I understood that it wasn't just a, a couple of cases of things having gone wrong, but that perhaps there was something um, more system systemically, you know, problematic. Um, however, that, that was in December last year, and even though I had the sense that something was going quite, um, quite awry, it took weeks and weeks to find more um, lawyers who were able to help me understand the situation and to find more individuals who were w willing to talk about it. 
yeah, it was a very, very slow and quite a frustrating um, period of trying to un understand what was going wrong. I was trying to go to all of the immigration charities that I could think of to say, do you understand what's happening? Could, could you help me to understand why it is that there's a pattern of much older um, Caribbean-born people who've lived here for half a century who are coming into um, difficulties with their documents. And um, so some people were quite helpful. Um, a, a lot of other, a lot of kind of small legal aid centres, actually because of the cuts and because of um, the, the fact that they're very overworked and um, understaffed, having a phone call from a journalist who wants your, your time to explain a, a problem that sounds very, very niche is, you know, it's usually not your number one priority. Um, and probably also that there may be a bit of weariness with, um, with journalists in the sense that, you know, um, as, as a kind of, perhaps as a, as a local law centre, you might actually have lots of things that you think need to be highlighted by the media, but sometimes it's not, it's not easy to kind of get that message across. So, so I was kind of reaching for the expertise in, in law centres, which was there, but wasn't immediately um, accessible. But somebody pointed me in the direction of a report that had been written in, in 2014 by, um, by the Legal Action Group, which is a very small um, organization. But they had submitted it to the government in 2014, and it's called, um, it's a report called Placing Status. And they highlighted in there the beginnings of a problem that came out as a result of some of the hostile environment policies that were introduced. <coughs> Namely, um, I think there were two key um, changes in 2014 with the Immigration Act. But you, if you wanted, um, if you wanted the, if you wanted to rent property privately from a private landlord, there was a greater um, requirement for landlords to check your immigration status, um, and then there were also greater checks on access to NHS healthcare and on access to driving licenses. And this report said, if, if you go ahead with this measure, um, you're going to find it's going to be very discriminatory against people who have been in the country for a very long time, but for whatever reason, haven't um, got the documents re required. Um, that report was given to the Home Office, but it, 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 I imagine it just kind of went and went on a pile of reports and... I know it was read because the Home Office made a kind of very anodyne statement about it, but it, it didn't, um, yeah, it didn't raise the red flag that perhaps it, it could have done or should have done. The Home Office has a press office which is very well staffed. I've, I've been trying to find out how many people work in the Home Office press office and I haven't totally got to the bottom of it, but I think, I think it could be around 40 people. So when you con consider that the Guardian newsroom is, I, I don't, I'm not even sure, but it's, you know, we don't have 40 reporters. So there's this kind of unequal battle almost um, 
well, it's perhaps an overstatement to call it a battle, but anyway, every time um, you write a story that's about the, anything touching on the Home Office, as, as a journalist, you have to go and you get the, um, a response from, from the Home Office. So with each of these cases, I'd say um, I'm writing about um, Paulette Wilson, for example. She says she's been in the country for 50 years, um, and she doesn't understand why she's been detained. And then, ideally, you let them have um, a day to think about it because they need to go and check their files and, um, and respond. Um, and to begin with, the responses were quite, um, I, I suppose, um, well, I mean, to begin with, I just would make quite a kind of um, straightforward response that said, um, we're sorry to hear about these difficulties. Um, this, this individual should apply for this bit of um, immigration, but should, should submit one of these forms. Um, but a bit later on, the, the tone of the, the responses changed, and there was a, a phrase that kind of came back and come, keeps coming back, and I think um, Sajid Javid keeps, keeps using it, and it's, it's something along the lines of, we, we really value the contribution made by the Commonwealth citizens who came and contributed so much to, to our country. So after, after a few weeks, it, it seemed as if um, there was the beginnings of an understanding within the Home Office that, that something was going wrong and that there were the kind of traces of apology coming out in the responses. It was a, it was a different kind of story to a lot of the issues that I've been writing about before. So I spent um, several years looking at um, the flow of um, asylum seekers and refugees coming into Britain from Calais and writing about kind of um, Syrian and Iraqi as asylum seekers. And, and that, that, that's a kind of um, very important issue, but it's, it's sort of an issue about um, a phenomenon that, that is, is happening and that the government has a kind of slightly messy response to. But, but that this issue was different because it was... Um, <coughs> Clearly, a mistake was being made, and it was a mistake that was being made on quite a large scale. Um, it wasn't clear until, you know, several months after the first um, person I met how large that scale was, but it was clear that it wasn't, it wasn't that a policy that was unpopular had been implemented. It was that the government was making a mistake, and, and that puts it as a kind of story category into, into a kind of, it's just in a different area. We don't have the resources for researchers at The Guardian. Um, we're, like all newspapers, we're struggling financially to greater or lesser extent. So I had resources in the sense that I was allowed to take the time to, to work on this. Um, but, yeah, we, we don't have kind of 
unseen teams of researchers helping. Um, but it, it, was, um, it was quite hard work because um, when I realised that, you know, I thought that there was a problem, I, I kind of anticipated that it would be quite easy to, to find more people who wanted to talk about similar situations and also that it would be quite easy to get um, immigration charities to, to help me or to ask MPs to put forward um, people who'd come to them with, with difficulties. But actually, um, as I realised later, it, it, it's, it's a really big thing to go and um, say, you know, I want to talk to a journalist about my immigration status. Because actually, when you think about it, it's a kind of... It, you know, it's a, there's a, a climate of general hostility towards um, on, around the subject of immigration, and you, you have to be fairly robust or fairly brave to say, "Look at me! I'd like to have my picture in the paper underneath a headline that says, you know, I've, I've been classified as an illegal immigrant." I mean, lots of people aren't that desperate to. to be interviewed about those issues so so that was quite problematic and and also the the other thing that was very very difficult was that it's quite a complicated problem to describe and I and I was asking people if they come across long-term Caribbean-born residents who've been in the UK for 50 years who were having immigration problems. It, it, it's a real kind of mouthful, and it doesn't make for a, a good headline. And it was only in April when um, a, a campaigner um, called Patrick Vernon, who was trying to get um, the government to announce a, an annual Windrush Day to commem commemorate the 1948 um, arrivals of the first the first big arrivals from the West Indies. He, he kind of came up with this classification of, of this group of people as Windrush people. And it was very helpful because it made it much easier as a, a headline and also made it much easier for people to understand this kind of quite complicated niche group of people who were affected by it. It's kind of clear that, uh, that we, at The Guardian, we, we were publishing for months and months stories about this problem, and actually no one paid an enormous amount of attention. Um, I, I mean, there, there was a kind of a growing <coughs> impact, but it, it wasn't, um, you know, it, it didn't really hit uh, the government's radar at all. Um, and I... I kind of know very clearly when the tipping point happened because um, it was the, the week before the Commonwealth Summit came to, came to the UK and, as you say, the High Commissioners had a meeting to... The 12 Caribbean High Commissioners had a meeting to say that they were very unhappy about what was happening and they requested... Um, they, they said that they'd requested a, a meeting with Theresa May which... They um, let it be known in, in passing at this um, meeting I was at that, that she'd, she'd refused to, or, or rather Downing Street had refused to um, timetable. So there was a kind of a perfect storm at that point because the 
the um, diplomats have become involved. There was a, a lot of um, involvement suddenly from backbench MPs, and they signed a letter, I think, 200 MPs cross-party had signed a letter to um, Amber Rudd. And also, the Daily Mail had, had got involved, which I think is quite significant because um, the, the Guardian has obviously a lot of impact, but <laughs> maybe um, you do need to have, um, you, you know, pressure from a different part of the media as well. And I think all of those things came together to suddenly, um, on, the, on the first morning of the Commonwealth Summit, to, to make it impossible for the government to ignore. And it was, it was definitely, we, we put the story that, that um, Downing Street had refused a meeting on this issue to the Caribbean leaders. We put that on the front page. And within six hours, Amber Rudd was making this very, very um, contrite apology. There was a recognition by Amber Rudd almost immediately um, that there was something going wrong in the Home Office and the first time that she um, apologised and she, in the two weeks before, this, before she resigned, um, she, I think, apologised about five or six times in, in kind of pu different public arenas. But the first time she, she did make a very... Um, acute point, which was that um, she, she said something had gone wrong within the Home Office and that the individual had been lost sight of in the pursuit of um, implementing policy. And I think that was a really significant admission and Sajid Javid has repeatedly said that he wants to have a system that's got more humanity within it. However, you know, we've, we've all been laughing a bit because the, what was called the hostile environment is now called the compliant environment. And actually, unless um, bits of legislation are repealed, nothing has um, changed fun fundamentally. There, there are still lots of strands of, of the reporting to... Um, continue investigating. Um, we know that the government wrongly deported um, quite a large number of people to Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad. Um, and I went in August to Jamaica to try and find some of them. Um, I, th I mean, I think there's a much bigger story still to be told about those un unfound people who were wrongly deported. I found a few, but I think there are probably a great many more. Um, there's a, a, a big unfolding story about how the government is or isn't going to compensate um, those people who were affected, and um, that, that compen compensation process is going on. And in the meantime, a lot of the people who were affected um, are still are still in financial difficulties. Um, it, I mean, it is, yeah, it's, it's, still, it's still very problematic. But on the plus side, um, in the past five months, I think, um, the government has given um, papers to 2,000 people, allowing them to um, remain here, um, and has given another 2,000 people British citizenship. So there has been a really kind of 
tangible, um, constructive result, which is really, yeah, which is a really rare thing as a as a journalist to to see something uh, positive come. I mean, yeah. I've been a journalist for almost 20 years and a lot of the time I write about subjects that I really mind about where I think, you know, there could be policy changes and things could be improved and a lot of the time you kind of write things and actually no one really pays an enormous amount of attention. So this was a very exciting thing to work on because uniquely almost um, something positive happened. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University and BBC Northeast and Cumbria. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks again for listening.